So there's a Latin proverb I like quite a lot. I'm going to give it to you in English. Whatever is received is received according to the manner of the receiver. And when I read the New York Times review of the book written by today's guest, the journalist said as much. In fact, the review was an awful lot about the reviewer. I think this can happen when you pick up a book called 4,000 Weeks, when you're at the age of 65, like me. Its provocative title tells us the average person lives what our guest describes as an absurdly terrifying and insultingly short 4,000 weeks, assuming you live until age 80. Pretty easy to do the math if you're 65. I have decidedly fewer than 4,000 weeks at best. So as a reader of this book, I felt a sense of urgency, but I always do. I think you do too. Years ago, a staff member of mine said to me, you know, I think you live in the world like you have a terminal illness. And I think he meant it as a compliment. I wanted you to hear from Oliver Berkman to understand what message he hopes to convey to those who read his book. I know that each of you works way too hard, often to the detriment of your family and your own health. The work feels so urgent, and it can feel ridiculously hard to prioritize, so often you don't. And of course, you're that passenger who cackles maniacally when the flight attendant directs you to put on your own mask first. Oliver asks us to embrace the limitations of life. Let's ask him what he means by that. I fear that while he is not advocating for this, I, as the receiver of this information, could read it and affirm the high productivity that so many people admire me for, that it could propel me to shove more do's into my to-do list. Maybe this, maybe this would be the time to tell you that I was up at six o'clock the other morning and over coffee, I Googled how long it would take me to learn American Sign Language because I thought that might be kind of nifty. I need Oliver's help and so do you. It's not about how to get more stuff done. So if that's what you hoped for today, I suggest you pick another podcast. Berkman says he hopes his book will help us, quote, see if we can't discover and recover some ways of thinking about time that do justice to our real situation, to the outrageous and shimmering possibilities of our 4,000 weeks, end quote. I found his insights and framing to be remarkable, more than a bit disruptive, and quite provocative. I'm sure you will too. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Oliver Berkman is a best-selling author and keynote speaker. His books include 4,000 Weeks, Time, and How to Use It, as well as, I like this one, The Antidote, Happiness to People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help! How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. For many years, Oliver wrote a weekly column, quite popular, on psychology for The Guardian. It was called, This Column Will Change Your Life. Talk about high expectations. His work has also appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Psychology's a New Philosopher. He has a devoted following for his writing on productivity, mortality, the power of limits, and building a meaningful life in an age of bewilderment. 
Oliver, I am delighted to have this conversation with you today. Our listeners need it desperately, and I'm not going to lie, I think I do too. It's really nice to have you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for that lovely introduction. I'm really, really happy to be here. So nonprofit leaders need to do, my, my son gave me this phrase, they need to pick up what you're putting down in this book. A very different approach to how we think about time. I just read that you have a devoted following for your writing on productivity, but that's actually not what this book is about, is it? (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I want to make the case that actually, although it isn't what this book is about, it's not going to do any harm to your productivity to feel your way a little bit more into this way of of thinking about time. And I, in fact, could do wonders for it. I think it has helped me uh, in in that regard. So, um, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. But yes, I think that getting things done for the sake of getting them done, that is is missing the point, much as it's a point that I have missed for many, many years of my my (laughs) own adult life. But uh, yeah. Holy smokes, there are a boatload of books about time management, and I could have probably Mm -hmm. secured a guest on any number of them, but we picked you. Why did we need another book on time management? Surely there are other things you could do with the limited weeks you have that you took to write this book. What's the, so why did you write the book and what's the problem you're trying to help people solve for? The only honest question, so the only honest answer to the question of why I wrote it is a cliched one, I think, for books that have advice or wisdom or supported wisdom in it, like this one, which is like, this has been a struggle very dear to my heart, close to my experience. And I and I was trying to figure out what the truth was here and th- thus effectively write the book of advice that I needed so as to sort of get my own thinking clear on the matter. And I think what I where where I reached on, as a result of that journey was really this this understanding that an awful lot of the this is one one way to begin, I suppose. An awful lot of the problems that we that we have with regard to time, and certainly the ways we make things worse with our attempts to become more productive or manage our time better, they have to do with a really deep level on which we don't accept the ramifications of being finite human beings. It's not really about the exact number of weeks you end up getting, because who knows in anybody's individual case, right? It's just about the fact that there will always be more perfectly meaningful and important things that any of us could have done with our time than we will ever come close to doing with our time. And so I think a lot of what we do when we uh, certainly as sort of busy people or ambitious people or driven people, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do when we say we're trying to get a handle on things or get in control of our time is really to try to reach a place where where we don't have to face that fact, right? We don't have to confront that truth that, you know, there'll always be too much to do. You'll get the opportunity to do a handful of the things that strike you as important, meaningful things to do with your time. And I think that it's ultimately really liberating. It's that sort of combination of what I'm going for is that combination of something very relaxing, ultimately, but also empowering, where you just sort of can, to some extent anyway, stop fighting that futile fight where you're trying to get everything done, where you're trying to feel on top of everything and and thus free up time and attention and motivation for you know doing a handful of things that that really count. And like I say, it was entirely something that I needed to internalize. Still do to some extent. I don't want to claim like I've I've figured it all out because that would be 
totally not right either. I often think that people write books either to grapple with something they're grappling with that feels kind of universal, right? I mean, you know, I have a book on nonprofit leadership and I wrote it because I, it was the book I wish somebody had handed me when I became a nonprofit executive director for the first time. Like, mm-hmm. like people have all kinds of motivations and all of them are legitimate, but I, you know, it's such an, inv- <laughs> it's such an investment of time, mm-hmm. right? So you talk about the immense frustration that people feel when they attempt to master their time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this? I, I, I think I have this belief that I can actually control my time. And I, I believe your book tells me I really, this is a false construct. Yeah, I think um, you can sort of look at this through the lens of the limited quantity of time we get, and you can look at it through the lens of the limited control we have over how that time unfolds and loosely the book is structured that way right the first bit is about quantity and the second bit is about control but i think that there are these kind of truths about the situation that we're in i always want to sort of reference heidegger at this point because i think it is in his work although it's incredibly difficult to understand and probably it's just best not to go there but um Although I would say, I would, I would also say, for those of you who have not read this book and are going to pick it up as a result of this podcast, there is a lot of philosophy in this <laughs> book, right? You grab onto, and I, as a communications and philosophy undergrad, I was really taken by your, by how philosophical, somewhat existential the book is. It, it is not like your typical time management oh, book. So back to Heidegger. But if you think about the sort of situation that we're in, we talk about time and we sometimes, I think, think about time as if it's another resource like money or as if it's like a physical possession that we have, something that you have control of to some extent, and then you decide what to do with. But in fact, the situation we all find ourselves in is we're just sort of thrown, the Heideggerian word, you know, thrown into time. We don't choose when in history we're born. We don't choose who our parents are, any of those things. And then forward on this river of time towards inevitable death. And you don't ever get more than one moment at a time, right? You don't actually have time in a meaningful sense. There's a writer called David Kane who makes this excellent point that, you know, when we say, oh, I've got a week before I have to hand that project in or something, we mean we expect it. We mean we think that probably things are going to go in such a way that we have that number of moments in which to do it. But we don't know that. All we ever have is this single, the single moment. And likewise, as saying before, we're always going to feel or probably going to feel uh, the desire to do more things or the obligation or the duty to do more things with our time than we ever could. So this adds up to a very natural, I think, desire to try to kind of, you sort of have to rely on idiomatic speech here, but to sort of get out on top of your life or out in front of your life. You're trying to sort of become the air traffic controller uh, of your life as if you're looking looking down on it and actually we're we're in it 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 is where we are and all we can really do is sort of navigate as wisely as possible through this situation from from moment to moment so sometimes i've expressed this echoing other people as you know we can't ever be free from time but we have a chance of feeling free in time if we can sort of more fully accept just how limited we are. And I think this should be a weight off people's shoulders, right? It's potentially stressful at first. And I gave my book a kind of stress-inducing title and, 
I, I, I acknowledge that. But, but it's actually a weight off your shoulders. And I can talk briefly if you want about when I first felt that kind of weight lift because it was very sort of meaningful moment to me. I would like you to do that. Okay, so I mean, I write about this in the book as well. But broadly speaking, I was I was sitting on a park bench in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, where we lived at the time, in the middle of a week that was sort of making me even more anxious than I usually was about all the things I had to get through by the end of that week or thought I had to get through. I was coming up with all these kind of schemes in my head for which combinations of scheduling and productivity techniques I would use to fight my way through to getting all this stuff done, all the other parts of my life that I would put on hold for that week so that I could get through it all. And just, I just remember very vividly being struck by the thought, oh, oh, it's impossible. The thing I'm trying to do is, isn't possible. And that, I don't mean my life changed in an instant. That was very much a sort of intellectual epiphany. And then you have to sort of live your way into these things. But I did feel in that moment, like, oh, I see, right. And there is something hugely freeing about that, right? About seeing that it just can't be done, the thing you were trying to do. And I think that is the situation in which many, many of the busy and overwhelmed people listening to this will will be in, right? It's like, you are telling yourself that you must do more than you can do. And anyone with a even introductory training in sort of ethical philosophy will understand that you can't, it can't be the case that you have to do more than you can do. That just, it doesn't make sense. There might be all sorts of socioeconomic and political reasons why you're being made to feel that way. Right. But, but it can't be the case that you have to do more than you actually can do in the time that you have. And so is there a, an argument to be made for sort of starting at the end and saying, it, it, like, if I'm just going to pretend I have 4,000 weeks, right? What do I want to be able to say I did? I mean, it, it does, does there, what things really will matter to me at the end? And what things will not matter to me at the end? And then to, because you get into this, uh, a, a very interesting discussion about embracing this notion of procrastination and that it's mm. actually, you should embrace it. And what it means, I, I think right? Like I try to think about, I do this on New Year. Like I, I have an exercise where I say, okay, on New Year's Eve, I'm sitting there watching those Fakakta shows about New Year's Eve balls dropping. And, and I, I want to just reflect on what were the big things that mattered to me during this past year that I feel really proud of that felt meaningful to me. And it wasn't all the stuff. There are things that float to the top. And I, I just wonder if thinking about your life in a finite way gives you the opportunity to say, okay, start at the end. And what, what might you like to be able to say, given the opportunity to have those 4,000 weeks? And I, I, I just wonder if that's a strategy that might help people to separate the wheat from the chaff around the productivity issue. I think it absolutely is a part of it, that kind of sort of post-mortem thinking, that idea of like what you want to be able to look back and say. I do think that a lot of very valuable techniques and frameworks, including that one, are kind of either brilliant or terrible, depending on the the spirit in which that you bring to them. And I can certainly see the earlier version of me and some other people I've known taking that exercise as an invitation for like even more stress, right? right. It's like, well, I've got to pack in 
twice as many astounding things as I thought I had to pack in. I should feel bad when I end up at the end of the day just wanting to veg out because who wants to have spent their valuable time vegging out? And what I'm trying to draw attention to in parts of this book anyway is to say that like that way of trying to reach peace of mind by packing by packing more and more and more in, it's like it will never reach resolution. You'll never get to the point where you say like, I'm doing enough. Because if you do manage to make your life such that you're doing twice as many astounding things in any given period of time, then you'll just want to do even more. That said, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that to myself all the time as well, right? It's that kind of like, when all is said and done, what, what do you want to have uh, focused your time and attention on? Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's, it's, definitely a, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a really useful way of, of thinking about it if you're already coming at it from that kind of finitude embracing perspective. You do talk about procrastination, and I generally, being a highly productive human, it feels a bit like a pejorative for me. Oh my gosh, I didn't get to that. I didn't, right? I, procrastination yeah. is, has, a, has a pejorative context to it. But you actually encourage people to embrace it and get good at it. Can you talk about what that means for you? Yeah, I find this notion of procrastination really interesting because as soon as you try to define it sort of rigorously, it sort of splits apart into what I came to think of as good procrastination and bad procrastination. So so good procrastination, borrowing here from a writer called Greg Kretsch, who points out that, you know, if there are more meaningful projects to move forward on than any person ever could move forward on, and if in any given period of time, an hour, you're going to be neglecting almost all of them in order to focus on one of them, hopefully, then by definition, like procrastination defined as not making progress on important projects is is always our situation. We're always not making progress on most of the important projects. And therefore, you know, this idea that actually getting good at procrastination is about learning to let yourself be okay with everything you're neglecting in order to make progress on on something, in order to give your time to something that matters. I often talk to when I blog and talk about nonprofit leaders my experience with them and having been one is that they are jugglers and Mm -hmm. they somehow believe that, you know, all of the pins they're juggling have equal weight and that someone is going to continue to throw pins at them and that their job is to try to keep them all in the air. And then at some point you just, it crushes and you drop them all. And that to me, when I was reading your book, I was feeling like that there's actually sort of a fine line between procrastination and prioritization is that a person has to actually grab a certain number of pins, but then make very, very intentional choices about the pins that are worth dropping because there are some pins that are sort of mission critical, whether it's mission critical for your organization or mission critical for your sense of self, whatever it might be. So I I think there's a correlation between procrastination and prioritization. Procrastination somehow assumes that there's a list of 10 equal things and you're never going to get to all of them. Whereas prioritization says, these two pins are more important than the others and I'm willing to drop the other eight in the service of being really good at the first two. Right. Or even that they're not necessarily more important than the others, but they're as important. And at some point, a choice is going to have to be made. Otherwise, all the pins drop. Not, you know, right. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of, of putting it. I saw somebody, somebody I, I can't attribute this right now, but like somebody um, using the phrase, it isn't prioritization 
and, until it hurts, <laughs> um, which is which is kind of a little bit of a tough love way of phrasing it, I guess. But it's that idea. It's like if you're a finite person prioritizing in these situations of overwhelming or even infinite inputs, then this is going to involve not doing a lot of things that it would be really good to be able to do. It's a huge issue in the nonprofit space because there are so many people around you who want, who who have priorities, your donors, your volunteers, mm-hmm. your board members, yeah. right? And for the most part, nonprofit leaders have pleaser tendencies. They don't want to say right. no. And so I find that when I coach people, if I can coach them to prioritize the things that matter most in the service of their mission, their North Star, it's more helpful to them. But it is not, it's not how most nonprofit leaders come to the work. And they also come to the work with, when I was at Showtime or MTV, right, there were, I could easily look at my portfolio of activities and say, okay, that's a one or a two or a three, but this thing Mm -hmm. is a nine or a 10, right? Mm -hmm. But for nonprofit leaders, they have a very difficult time identifying things that are not nines and tens. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can very easily imagine that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that this is a common trait with all sorts of things I think I'm gesturing to in the book, but the thing that makes it bearable to to make these trade-offs, to let things go, the one thing that makes it bearable is realizing that you don't actually have any choice in the first place, right? That that you can either consciously let things drop in order to focus on some others and undergo consciously that pain of um, not being able to do all the things, or you can have that happen anyway because you're finite and you're not going to succeed. And eventually, you know, uh, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And that is how it's going to be, right? There isn't, there isn't an option here, if I'm right and if I'm expressing this properly, right? There isn't an option here where you get to not do this one way or another. And to me, that's the thing that always makes it tolerable, right? So, you know, if I'm, I'm just thinking of a personal example here, but if I set aside what feels like very important or urgent work at a certain point in the day to go and spend time with my son, as I both want to and should, it's very helpful to not expect to feel like the work is all done and finished and that the the time that I'm about to go into with my son would be otherwise completely empty. No, it would be otherwise filled with really good, important work. Right. And that that I think actually helps a few people and, you know, makes a bit of money and all the rest of it. So, So just sort of realizing that that comes with the territory has been a very big part of it. For, for for me. And I think it, it's not that, you know, you, you feel overwhelmed, you feel pulled in too many directions, you feel anxious or whatever your personal emotional response to it is. And then your instinct is to get rid of that feeling by bearing down on the work. But or, actually, I think... Or the moment, right? So right. I was very struck by, and you refer to your son, and I have a six-month-old grandson as my first... my you know, my first possible Messiah. And I can lay on the floor and like hang out with this guy who's not yet crawling. And it almost feels a little meditative because he is not experiencing time the way that I do. And I actually, in those moments, I am actually able to shut out what I could or should, whatever should means, be doing anyway, because I'm actually experiencing 
time the way Ernie does. Yeah. Yeah, I think those kinds of experiences with sort of free verbal kids are a really interesting pointer at the sort of other end of the scale of delight. I think the way we act in in true emergencies is a really interesting pointer as well. There's right. a kind of a, a lot of everything. people, including me, who feel totally plagued by indecision in the rest of their lives seem to be okay uh, in crises because suddenly there's only one thing we have to do, so we just do it. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, I think there's some there's a strange commonality between those two. I mean, you know, speaking poetically, uh, speaking yeah. poetically, I guess having a newborn baby is a kind of an emergency, regardless, right? It's like it's like when they need things, they need things, and it's not about how can I cram things into the schedule. It's about what needs to happen in this moment, and this one, and this one. Yep, and I think the the other thing about that the grandson thing, it's more than just about sort of experiencing the world the way he does and everything else kind of being still, like staying, like time sort of stands still in those moments. There's also a certain wonder about it. And I was walking down the street and looking at a woman who was sitting with a six-month-old happy fleshy baby on her lap, uh, looking across at the ocean and I thought, she's having a moment. I hope she knows she's having a moment. Like, right? <laughs> like, I, I wanted to go over and say, you know, you're having a moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I thought she'd think I was kind of nuts. Well, I'm so glad you didn't, because that is another, I actually mentioned this in something I wrote, that, you know, there is something important here. When you have a newborn, almost everyone you know tells you that you should be savoring the time that you have with the newborn. And it's like, it's the most unhelpful thing anyone can ever say because to someone like me anyway, because then you're just like, oh, am I savoring this enough? I better try savoring harder. And then <laughs> I need more savoring sort of, time. Right, Let's put that right, in from nine to 11. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You can't do it. And what that tells me anyway, is that there is a sense in which we sort of, these experiences of timelessness and of sort of finding the present moment instant deeply fulfilling you sort of can only fall into them, not will yourself into them. And they come from, this is, I mean, if you go down this avenue necessarily, but they actually come in some sense from giving a low value to time. They come in some sense from not caring if you waste the next 10 minutes. And then Absolutely. And then what happens is it's the exact opposite of a waste. Uh, it's not a waste at all. It's like the it's it's like the it's it's it is a fueling. It becomes the thing when you put your head on your pillow at night. The thing you remember most about your day. Right, and and on some level, the statement of the end game here is you could state what we're shooting for here as the ability to put no value on time at all. That's the that's the kind of. That there's something very fascinating about that. And I, I see all the ways in which it sort of pushes in the opposite direction of a lot of what we've been discussing. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are chatting with Oliver Berkman. He is the author of 4,000 Weeks Time and How to Use It. He's also the author of The Antidote Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking and Help How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a bit more done. 
a devoted following he has on his writing on productivity, mortality, the power of limits, and building a meaningful life in the age of bewilderment. So I do want to talk about rest, but before I do that, I, I think I want to tread into some religious territory for a moment, if I may. Um, All right. Uh, at the risk of uh, something. Um, <laughs> so I was raised Catholic, and I believed that the you know one of the objects of the game was to collect win valuable prizes through good deeds so that I would, at the end, win a key to St. Peter's Pearly Gates and get an mm -hmm. afterlife. I married a Jewish woman, daughter of Holocaust survivors, and most Jews do not believe in an afterlife. They think mm -hmm. this, is, this is what we got and that you are put on this earth to repair it and then your job is done. And I find this... And so I did actually, uh, I am now a Jew by choice. And because this concept appeals to me that you do good works for the sake of them, not, and again, I, you know, there are probably lots of people who will argue with me and, and complain to me about what I've just said, but, but let's bear with me for a second. Does the idea of whether there's an afterlife or not have a role to play in this issue of time and how I use it? Yeah, this is an incredibly interesting topic to me. And I should say right at the outset that I like I don't have an answer. It isn't something that I went into in in huge detail in uh in researching the book. Uh it's sort of a future discussion. One thing that's so interesting about the religious lens here is that until so recently, all intellectual traditions that develop as religious traditions. So the fact that you can find sort of every Thing, even just within Christianity, let alone, you know, uh, when you look uh, across religions. And so, yeah, you get this kind of, this certain kind of maybe a folk religious belief of et in eternal life, which is actually just this linear sense that it just sort of carries on uh, much as this one, but in a different location. Mm -hmm. um, and that does seem to sort of, if that's your position, in some ways it's harder to care so much about what you do in, in this world because it's purely preparatory. Of course, then you get some traditions, I think some of Catholicism and Calvinism is the obvious one that springs to mind, where actually it, it, incredible, it matters incredibly that you are, either you're predestined, so you better, sh you better show that you're a good person because that's going to be some kind of proof that you're already predestined to heaven, or it's kind of you know, salvation through works, you, you better do a lot of good stuff with your time. Right. I think that religious, the feel of that framing, like I've got to do a certain amount of stuff in order to save myself yep. and feel saved is like, that is, I, I think plenty of us who are not particularly religious are kind of bewitched by that kind of idea. That's deep in our, deep in our bones. I'm a sort of mixture of Jewish and Quaker. Uh -huh. uh, religiously, uh, but um, but I seem to have ended up with a perfectly strong bit of sort of Calvinism plus Catholic guilt. It's weird. I don't know where it came from. Um, <laughs> and, and then I know there are lots of other understandings of eternal life that are more sophisticated than that, right? And it's something to do with eternal life being being right here. And it's not just a sort of statement about the, the linear. And then you get cyclical ideas of time in a lot of religious traditions, right? So that sort of also makes it seem much more like, well, you're just playing your part here and then someone else will play that part later on or the thing that many people i think who sort of have a passing familiarity with with buddhism i don't claim to have much more than that but don't realize which is about reincarnation in buddhist tradition which is that the goal is to get off that whole 
wheel and no longer reincarnate. Like that's when you won, when you when you die and you just die instead of uh, instead of coming back. So this is all really just to say that there are so many different yeah. interpretations of these kinds of ideas. But and it's a, but it's a, all... but don't you think it is? And we can move on from it. But it's it sits on people as a lens, right? Absolutely. And, and, yeah. And depending on your religious tradition, it sits on you as a lens that has an impact on how you think about time. Absolutely. And so you get people who could be completely atheist, but they were raised in the cultures we're raised in. And if that's North America, goodness knows that is a sort of culturally Christian and Judeo-Christian culture, whether you want to play any part in it or not. This notion that we can be that that we're trying to save ourselves through our Good through works. our work and our interactions with time. And the counter notion, the sort of idea that is embodied in the Christian notion of grace but in lots of other traditions have their own versions that that actually maybe there's nothing you need to do in order to be worthy that maybe when you get up in the morning you're 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 enough as you are you're not you're not trying you don't have to earn that through getting through a sufficient number of items on the to-do list by the time evening rolls around yeah so i guess i have three more questions and i'll let you go um you write a chapter on rediscovering rest and so i um, found myself reading it And I found myself thinking about something that happened to me last week. So I had this writing day. I didn't have any clients. And I have a house that's um, blocks from the ocean. And I have the privilege of a lovely pool in my backyard. And a friend was visiting who's retired. That's a whole Mm -hmm. other topic. Um, (laughs) Who popped into my office and said, I'm going to paddle around the pool. Would you like to join me? And the truth of the matter is I could have. And I would have enjoyed it on many levels. I think it would have refreshed me and brought me back to my work in a better way. I think I would Mm -hmm. have connected with my friend for a few minutes, but I didn't do that. And I'm pretty sure I made the wrong call. And I wonder, it's a a little bit about that self-care question, right? Is thoughts on, and I think this is, I I think I speak for others on this, uh, listening to this podcast. I feel really stupid I didn't go for that swim, Oliver. Like, like, how do I change my mindset so that when I'm asked if I want to take a 15-minute break and go for a swim in the pool, that I'm like, hell yeah. Uh, I, I hear you. I mean, that's me, right? I'm, I'm one of those people too. I think that um, the thing that has been, one of the things I'm sort of tracking that has made a big difference to me is, well, it seems obvious that a lot of things we know are good for us and not just in, term, in, a, in a sort of do your homework, eat your green sense, but actually sort of really nourishing for us are not the things that we want to do in the moment. Um, right. If we measure want in terms of, you know, impulse and and where you feel drawn in that second. I often feel drawn to scroll through social media instead of write the book that really matters to me. And I certainly feel drawn to go do a whole bunch of chores that could wait rather than go and do something like you describe with a friend. An extraordinary difference was made for me in just realizing that I shouldn't expect the experience of the the better thing in those cases to feel fantastic right at the beginning. Right. And, you know, maybe I have the opportunity to sit down for an hour and read a novel. Well, I should not expect the first 15 minutes of that time to be like super fun. It, it's because the flywheel is turning. We are conditioned to do the, you know, you're resisting something. You're pushing back against something. Almost always then deep absorption does come. Even if it doesn't, you still like, you know, hung out with your friend or whatever, right? It's still, it's still good. But I've found, yeah, just sort of just not 
expecting not being surprised by the fact that it's difficult to rest because it's not right and so is getting into it the initiation of it doesn't feel great it's the looking back on the choice you made as having been a very good one yeah and the memories created but also the experience itself after a certain amount of time right yep. i mean it's the same with vacations I, I it's taken a lot for me to get to a point where i can take a week where I plan to do no work at all. And I've learned from those experiences that like the first two days feel like, well, probably I should be doing a bit of work and I'm not sure I really enjoy this whole, you know. Sit around, do uh, nothing parent, thing. Yeah. Parent, or sitting around, do nothing or parenting stuff. You know, then it's suddenly deeply absorbing. Cartoon in the New Yorker not so long ago of a man and a woman sitting on a beach and the, the woman is saying to the man, we are doing something, you're just not good at it. <laughs> And that, is, uh, <laughs> and that is something that I, I've taken to heart. It's, I, uh, I yeah. love that. One more sort of big question. You wrote this book actually before the pandemic. And I wonder if you are hearing people think about time differently since the pandemic, or do you wish that they were thinking about time differently since the pandemic? I wrote it sort of partly through the pandemic. So the idea for it and the sort of foundations and the first sort of two thirds were definitely pre COVID. And then the the latter third was um, sort of written during that experience. And I was doing edits coming out as we were sort of coming out of the, the worst of that, I think. Right. Um, I think a lot of people did experience a kind of perspective shift. I quote the work of a writer I've since got to know a bit called Julio Vincent Gambuto, who wrote a sort of viral essay for Medium in the middle of all that stuff, saying, not taking a position on whether this or that response was the right one not not but just saying like isn't it amazing that as a society we can apparently just change on a dime almost everything we do whether you in hindsight think those changes were the right ones or not just like like we can do this and it and it opens up this kind of space to make you see that like well what else might be possible and what else do i could i what other assumptions about how life either as a society or one's individual life, what other assumptions about how that just has to be are suddenly thrown in the air. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of debate about the causes or even the reality of things like the great resignation yeah. and all this. But but I think what you can't deny is that a lot of people, whether through grief or through loneliness or through actually really in finding all sorts of unexpected benefits once in the condition of lockdown or whatever you are on that spectrum just thinking like oh maybe not everything i'd been assuming was fixed about how i relate to time yes has to stay fixed and then of course the big challenge which julio was writing about in that essay which is called prepare for the ultimate gaslighting then the question is like how do you hang on to that when all the forces in the economy and the society want to just push you back into it and i think the jury is out on how much of a change that really wrought in our relationship with time. I think we're still going through a whole much more sort of politicized thing about whether which parts of what happened were good yes, um, or bad. And, you know, that's a, that's a legitimate debate. But there's this other level, which is just like the fact that there was that perspective jolt at all is and, and what the ramifications of that will prove to yes been. it was uh to use a word i used earlier very disruptive in terms of people thinking about time and its value final question so you're talking to a boatload of highly productive <laughs> nonprofit leaders 
you know, I think to myself, I, uh, my math says I got about, about best case, maybe worst case, I don't know, 780 weeks. Others listening have more, <laughs> some of them have a less. And I have listeners who have really come to expect practical advice from their time yep. spent with you, with me and my guests. And, you know, I cover things from how to diversify your board, beginning meditation practice for self-care, how to raise yep. money. Any thoughts as we close out here about what should our guests sort of take away from this conversation? What might we think about or questions we might ask ourselves to begin what is for many of us kind of a seismic mindset shift? Well, I won't mainly use this as a sales pitch, but I but I think it is worth saying that at the back of the book, I do sort of list 10 more practical aspects to this and also sort of five questions that I think are really useful. And I'm not going to try and detail them all now. No, but if you could throw one uh, or two but, of them but, our way, I think it would be really yeah. good. Yeah, there are a few things there to do with sort of ways of approaching the challenge of planning the day that take on board this fact of finitude. So one of these things, which I partly attribute to Cal Newport, uh, whose uh, work I'm sure many listeners will be aware of as well, is this notion that I call fixed volume productivity, where you sort of, uh, it, the very briefest thing is to say that you, the, the way in which you think about a day is, is first of all, by figuring out how much time you can or are willing to give to work or to a certain kind of work, and then deciding what are the most important things to put inside that container. Yep. As opposed to what we normally do, which is wake up in the morning and make a list of all the things we think need to get done that day and then just sort of barrel through them. So this and there are a whole lot of others there, you know, ways of starting from the finite nature of the time and then saying, given this limit that exists, what would be the two or three things that are most important for this day? And accepting that there are another 500 that, you know, would be lovely to have got to, but but you're not going to. Honestly, I think that one of the most important things I want to say is that I think it's quite normal for people interested in this stuff and also for the kind of people that I think are in the audience for this conversation to think, okay, this sounds interesting. This sounds like something that I could benefit from. So I'm going to launch a whole new like personal scheme to put this into practice or maybe even a organization level scheme to put this into practice. So first of all, and I know that, you know, it's not just nonprofits, but like, you know, you might think like, first of all, I'm going to go and like spend a day thinking about my core values and maybe we need a retreat or, you know, the sort of individual <laughs> equivalent of an offsite, whatever it is. Well, none of this is bad, but like, actually, I have found anyway that that kind of thinking very often is just a way of prolonging the same problem, right? It's turning the whole thing into an attempt to dominate time once and for all, to get on top of everything once and for all. So. The real thing that I want to say in terms of what somebody could do practically is to locate, to, to think of, you know, to identify one thing, a work project, a personal project, uh, something that they care about and have not been giving any time to, a relationship they think is important to nurture that they haven't been given any time to, a meditation, uh, a practice of meditation, physical exercise, whatever it is, and not draw up a whole scheme for how you're going to acquire a new habit and do that every day for the rest of your life explicitly not to do that but instead just to dedicate like one half hour or one 10 minute period depending on the thing right to that thing today or you know if you're listening to this at 11 p.m maybe it's okay to do it at tomorrow but like 
to actually do that thing, not to launch a big project to become the kind of person who always does that thing, but to actually do that thing just once and see where the change that is made to your world by doing that, see where that takes you next. I love that. And it actually ties in so nicely. I had the best conversation with BJ Fogg, who's written mm. Tiny Habits, and then yeah. and um, it very much aligns with how he thinks about building new habits and thinking differently. Is that you don't projectize some big initiative in your organization because that's just another that's just another project you have to prioritize as opposed to can I can I get myself to the boardwalk today during lunchtime and walk right. for two miles? Maybe I right. can. Yeah. Yeah. And don't be put off by the idea that you're not going to get another chance or you think you're not going to get another chance for the next two weeks. Like, fine. Today is what counts. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much. Oliver Berkman, um, author of 4,000 Weeks, a very, very insightful and, yeah, a little unsettling. uh, And yes, a provocative title, but um, it made for some excellent dinnertime conversation here while I had uh, family and friends visiting for the weekend. And I hope that it also both unsettled you and gave you some really good food for thought. Oliver, thanks for your work and um, really appreciate what you add to the conversation around time because it is very, it isn't like anything else you read. So it seems to me a very good use of your time to write that book. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for this conversation, Joan. I've I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. Um, And for all of you listening, um, I hope you picked something up from this conversation that will be of value to you. In the meantime, I hope you're doing well. Uh, Take good care of yourself and thank you for the work you do every day and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.